I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. It's Monday, January 10th, 2022, the 355th day of dystopia. Truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Fewer people are convinced by the story each day as they begin to see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. The time for allowing them to make us feel like strangers in our own country is over. We are Americans. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. This is the end game. Before we get started, if you want to see what I am reading and thinking throughout the day, follow the podcast info stream on the Telegram app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. I put a bunch of new merch into the merch store. You can find that at www.cancelcotour.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'm using a new payment platform. If you'd like to donate and support the show or do a donation subscription there, you can go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. That's K-O hyphen F-I dot com slash I'm your moderator. Also, if you've never done this before and you listen on iTunes, it would be great if you could go leave a five-star review, maybe leave some comments if you feel like it. I got a couple of really hilarious one-stars in the last couple of months from people who have a very hard time observing and understanding the reality that exists around them. And they think, oh, these are angry conspiracy theories. And, you know, that really hurts my feelings. Like, oh, no, how will I go on? The funny thing is that these people who we have dealt with for years and years now are actually really, really angry about everything, right? These are people who will try to have someone's job taken from them for a disagreement. These are people who will kick friends and family members out of their lives over disagreements. And quite often, the disagreements are on subjects about which these people don't know anything. And most of them will eventually admit it if you press them, if you have the conversation with them. They'll call something a conspiracy theory. They'll call something racist or sexist or homophobic. They'll make up some reason why you're bad for saying it. And then if you go through that part, they will eventually get angry, get up and walk away. And no one who knows what they're talking about and cares as much as these people say they they actually care would do that. Like, why wouldn't you try to convince me with your grand wealth of knowledge that I actually am wrong if you know what you're talking about? I mean, we are in a conversation. This is the time to do it, right? Aren't you all about changing hearts and minds? How come you're so unable to do it? And of course, the reason for that is they don't know what they're talking about. 
And at that point, they are left simply repeating slogans that they can't back up. Those slogans fail them. And so what's left? They still feel self-righteous. They still feel like they must be the morally good ones, even though they don't have any way of supporting anything they say. All that's left is anger. So the January 6th anniversary came and passed. And the Democrats celebrated it in just embarrassing ways. They sent out Joe and Kamala to make their statements comparing January 6th to Pearl Harbor and 9-11 as if January 6th represented destruction on a grand scale. Oh, I know they tried to destroy democracy, our democracy, our democracy. It's crumbling. Because people don't believe in the results of a totally, obviously fraudulent election with overwhelming evidence to support that if only they would look, but they will not look because looking would mean they have no way to respond. They would rather pretend it doesn't exist. They don't want to confront the monster of reality and what it might show them. So they determine instead that reality just is not real and that whatever they've been told to satisfy their position is actually real. They will convince themselves of a false but comforting reality and they'll just move on. Wouldn't want to spend your time on a subject like election fraud, even though all of them spent years saying that the Russians had stolen the election for Donald Trump. But there's nothing quite as embarrassing as the January 6th commission, which is entirely illegitimate by constitutional standards. Nancy Pelosi opened up the commission regardless. She did not allow her counterpart on the other side of the aisle in Congress, Kevin McCarthy, to select members who would be on that committee. Instead, she refused his selections and chose Two representatives who have an R by their name, but nonetheless are not Republicans in Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. And Liz Cheney has begun calling herself the ranking member of the committee. She would be the highest ranking member of the opposition party. That's what the ranking member is in these commissions. And Molly Hemingway from The Federalist tweeted this out. Holy crap. Liz Cheney just falsely claimed she is the ranking member, the top representative of the GOP caucus on the January 6th committee. In fact, she was hand selected by Nancy Pelosi and is not the ranking member. Huge, huge legal implications associated with that lie. Well, that'll be fun for Liz Cheney. They have been trying to get Jim Jordan, among others, to come testify before the committee. They have basically targeted everyone who could possibly be associated with Donald Trump during that time period leading up to January 6, 2021, in every way they could. And it seems like what they actually want is to get information that they are unable to get about the thinking of Donald Trump and anyone around him, anyone associated with him. They want to impose a legal burden on these people. They have gone after Steve Bannon for contempt of Congress because he won't come in and testify. And it's hard to see this as anything other than the persecution of political opponents like you might see in a banana republic or an illegitimate 
dictatorial regime, which amazingly is exactly what we have. The January 6th committee in Congress has no legitimacy, none. They're doing it to keep the January 6th story, the story that they have told in the central narrative, not the real story. Of course, they can't confront the real story because the real story doesn't help them at all. But they want to keep the central narrative going and the fuel for doing that, they hoped, would be the testimony from people around Trump, because otherwise, what else are they going to find out? Our side is finding things out. Darren Beatty and Julie Kelly are doing fantastic reporting about January 6th. Marjorie Taylor Greene is highlighting the conditions that the political prisoners in Washington, D.C., are being held under. The defense attorneys for some of those political prisoners are trying to get at the 14,000 hours of security tape footage from January 6th, knowing that their defense will be helped by that real evidence. And they're also using subpoenas to attempt, at least, to get testimony from Ray Epps, Stuart Rhodes, and John Sullivan all of whom were involved in the mayhem on January 6th and none of whom have been questioned or subpoenaed. They've still had their phones. And the question is, why are those people being treated so much differently than the Americans who are currently rotting in DC jails? So over the weekend, Jim Jordan responded to the request to have him appear. And this is his letter in response to Benny Thompson, who is leading the January 6th committee. Dear Representative Thompson, the American people are tired of Democrats, nonstop investigations and partisan witch hunts. Your letter of December 22nd, 2021, unfortunately continues this Democrat obsession. It amounts to an unprecedented and inappropriate demand to examine the basis for a colleague's decision on a particular matter pending before the House of Representatives. This request is far outside the bounds of any legitimate inquiry, violates core constitutional principles, and would serve to further erode legislative norms. As you well know, I have no relevant information that would assist the select committee in advancing any legitimate legislative purpose. I cannot speak to Speaker Pelosi's failure to ensure the appropriate security posture at the Capitol complex in advance of well-publicized protests on January 6, 2021. I cannot elaborate on former U.S. Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sun's statement that a concern about optics following widespread calls from Democrats in 2020 to defund the police contributed to the limited security response. I have nothing to add to the bipartisan comprehensive findings of the Senate investigative committees or to those issued by federal inspectors general. I cannot testify about the Justice Department's ongoing law enforcement efforts, although I'm aware of reports that the FBI has determined the violence was not coordinated or part of any, quote, organized plot to overturn the presidential election result, end quote. At the time of the security breach of the U.S. Capitol, I was present in the House chamber performing my official duties pursuant to the U.S. Constitution and federal law. The other topics referenced in your letter likewise relate to the performance of official duties. Your attempt to pry into the deliberative process informing a member about legislative matters before the House is an outrageous abuse of the select committee's authority. This unprecedented action serves no legitimate legislative purpose and would set a dangerous precedent for future Congresses. And that's an important point 
to keep in mind. This investigation is premised on the idea that the Congress's findings would support the enactment of legislation, right? That is their job. They are not a criminal investigative unit. Okay, when they are beginning to charge things like contempt of Congress, what you are finding is that they are trying to create crimes to fulfill their prior goal, which is getting information from all these people that they pretty clearly do not have the legal or constitutional authority to get. It is telling that the select committee has chosen only to target Republican members with demands for testimony about January 6th. Unlike many senior Democrats, I have been consistent in denouncing political violence and supporting law enforcement personnel. Whether the violence occurred on January 6th at the Capitol or in the summer of 2020 in cities across the country, I'm aware of no effort by the select committee to solicit testimony from Speaker Pelosi, House Administration Chair Zoe Lofgren, or any other Democrat members with responsibility for or oversight of the security posture at the Capitol complex on January 6th. This double standard confirms our suspicion that Democrats are using the select committee as a partisan cudgel against their political adversaries and not to advance any legitimate legislative purpose. Even if I had information to share with the select committee, the actions and statements of Democrats in the House of Representatives show that you are not conducting a fair minded and objective inquiry. House Democrats have already prejudged the results of the select committee's work. Declaring in their February 2021 impeachment brief that President Trump is unmistakably responsible for the events of January 6th. Democrats have accused their Republican colleagues of sedition and called them traitors for objecting to Electoral College results in certain states. An official action taken pursuant to federal law and the same objections that you and other senior House Democrats made following the 2000, 2004, and 2016 presidential elections. Democrats violated the most fundamental and longstanding safeguard for fairness in House proceedings in standing up the select committee. In an unprecedented action, Speaker Pelosi rejected Leader McCarthy's chosen Republican members to serve on the select committee. Speaker Pelosi also failed to consult with Leader McCarthy about the appointment of Republican members in direct violation of the requirement in the resolution establishing the select committee that she do so. As a result, and without any Republican members selected by the Republican leader, the select committee has no effective measure of balance or objectivity. The conduct of the select committee to date reinforces the perception that it cannot be trusted to operate fairly or in good faith. The select committee has abused fundamental civil liberties, investigating private citizens, political speech protected by the First Amendment, and seeking to impose gag orders on telecom and email companies to prevent them from notifying their customers that the select committee has demanded their data. When good faith disputes over privileged information have arisen, the select committee has declined to make genuine efforts to obtain information through the civil contempt mechanism available to Congress, instead choosing to punish individuals with criminal contempt referrals. The select committee has also failed to operate transparently, holding just a single public hearing to gather testimony. The select committee has exploited this lack of transparency to selectively leak information, alter and misrepresent non-public documents in its possession, and spread misinformation to paint a false and misleading narrative. To cite just a few examples, in a widely distributed letter, you falsely accused former New York Police Commissioner Bernard Carrick of attending a meeting in Washington on January 5th, 2021, when Carrick was actually in New York City. 
during a business meeting to consider holding our former colleague Mark Meadows in criminal contempt of Congress, Representative Adam Schiff, a member of the select committee, doctored a text message I had forwarded to Mr. Meadows. And we went over that a few weeks ago on the podcast. During the floor debate on the Meadows criminal contempt resolution, Representative Jamie Raskin, another member of the select committee, falsely attributed a second text message to a lawmaker when in fact it was not sent by any member of Congress. If the select committee can so readily violate American civil liberties and mislead Americans about the information it possesses, including information relating to me, I have no confidence that the select committee will fairly or accurately represent any information I could provide. And make no mistake, any such information would be directly related to my deliberations and objections pursuant to a statutorily prescribed procedure. Again, it's critical to understand that the Republicans in Congress, the people who objected to the overwhelming evidence of fraudulent electors due to a fraudulent election, had every right to do that. That is what the law calls for. That's what they are supposed to do. And that's what they were doing to represent their constituents. It is exactly what was supposed to happen. The problem lies with all the people that did not object to that fraudulent election because all of them know the truth. They just decided for one reason or another, and those reasons are usually corruption and compromise or simple political ambition, a situation that they could take advantage of. And then I'm sure some have Trump derangement and figure that no matter what happened, this is the better option. But there was nothing illegal or unconstitutional or immoral or unethical about those objections. Finishing out the letter, the American people deserve better than the Democrats incessant focus on partisan investigations. Rampant inflation is hurting American families. An unmitigated crisis at the southern border threatens American communities. The Biden administration is weaponizing counterterrorism tools against American parents. And President Biden's weak leadership endangers American service members overseas. These real challenges affecting our constituents today are the issues on which Congress should properly be focused. And of course, he's right. And the polling supports that. Americans are not on board with this ridiculous January 6th farce. And the narrative's not even moving in their direction. That's one thing that you always have to keep in mind. Absolutely zero of the public narratives, all of the important issues, none of them are moving in their direction. They are all moving in our direction as our information stream pushes truth out to the general public and into the central narrative. And then they have to incorporate those inconvenient truths into the central narrative. And they still try to push forward anyhow, which means they have to come up with new stories that somehow incorporate all this extraordinarily damning information, which makes their stories get more and more ridiculous and more detached from reality to the point where pretty much everyone can see that they're being lied to. And by the way, just Keep your eyes open this evening. Project Veritas is saying that they have a leak or something that will expose Anthony Fauci, never before seen documents, whatever. Project Veritas, 75% to 80% of the time, I would say, when they're hyping something, they're delivering the goods. Not all the time. Sometimes it's like, ah, okay, well, that's not going to get anybody. 
You know, it's good to know, obviously, they always do great work, but not all of the stuff they put out actually kind of gets that critical mass it needs to to break into the mainstream understanding. But they're going pretty hard on this one. And I got to say, I believe them. So keep your eyes open for that this evening. I guess they're releasing it at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And think about that just within the last few weeks, right? In the last week or so, they have tried to scare us with three new, very scary variants, right? Something called IHU that never really took off. Uh, flu Rona, right? A combination of flu and coronavirus. One person tested positive for both on tests that don't work and can't distinguish flu from coronavirus. Isn't that incredible? And then they tried this weekend. They were trying to drum up some momentum behind Delta Cron. You got that? It's as bad as Delta, but with the transmissibility of Omicron. Oh, no. But something to keep an eye on is this. I had mentioned in the info stream in October that we should keep our eyes and ears open for them starting to mention uh, Marburg. And today, Robert Malone was on War Room and talked about reports of a hemorrhagic fever in China like Ebola or Marburg. But I'm a conspiracy theorist. So beyond that, we have had them on CNN, Leanna Wen, that insane communist who pretends to be a very informed doctor, saying that cloth masks don't work. And of course, they never did. The vaccine narrative is falling apart because all sorts of vaccinated and boosted people are getting Omicron, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And we are finally getting to the part of the conversation where the people addicted to the central narrative finally realize that there is actually a distinction between with COVID and from COVID. Here is the director of the CDC on the Sunday shows pretending that she is unaware of what the actual numbers are regarding how many of the hospitalizations and deaths occurred with COVID, but because of something else and from COVID itself. Again, we've been talking about that for a year and a half. And it has always been true that on the death certificates, 94, 95, 96% of the COVID deaths occur in people with significant comorbidities, four of them on average. And we were told that even bringing that up was somehow offensive to the dead. We were trying to politicize their deaths. <laughs> oh my God. Right. Inflating the number of actual COVID deaths 20 times is just being better safe than sorry, right? Accounting for all the possibilities, but saying, Hey, uh, aren't you inflating those numbers by a factor of 20? That's politicization. The overwhelming number of deaths over 75% occurred in people who had at least four comorbidities. So really these are people who were unwell to begin with. You got that? That's Rochelle Walensky being a conspiracy theorist and minimizing the deaths of 836,000 people by 
stating the completely obvious fact that the overwhelming majority of them did not die from COVID. Oh, it was a mitigating factor. Yes. Yes. That car accident death was compounded by COVID. That murder was compounded by COVID. Got it. And you're thinking, oh, well, they're not counting murders and car accident deaths as COVID. Oh, yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. COVID is listed on the death certificate. Sometimes they just list suspected COVID, but that counts too. George Floyd was a COVID death. Isn't that amazing? And also from the land of the uninformed, we have the Democrat appointed Supreme Court justices spewing dangerous medical disinformation and misinformation from the halls of the Supreme Court or in Sonia Sotomayor's case from home on Zoom because she has diabetes and can't go to work. And obviously, I'm not making fun of diabetes. I'm making fun of Sonia Sotomayor for using diabetes as an excuse to stage the ridiculous appearance through Zoom rather than simply showing up because she's going to be okay either way. This is from the Epic Times. CDC director disputes Supreme Court Justice Sotomayor's claim about children seriously ill with COVID-19. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Rochelle Walensky disputed Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor's claim that 100,000 children are hospitalized or seriously ill with COVID during arguments made before the court on January 7th. During an interview with Fox News Sunday on January 9th, Walensky confirmed that there are about 3,500 children in the hospital who have tested positive for COVID-19, the disease caused by the CCP virus. When asked about there being 3,500 children hospitalized as opposed to 100,000, Walensky said, yes, there are. And in fact, what I will say is while pediatric hospitalizations are rising, they're still about 15 fold less than hospitalizations of our older age demographics. The CDC director said she's not sure how many children are on ventilators. In some hospitals that we've talked to, up to 40% of the patients who are coming in with COVID are coming in not because they're sick with COVID, but because they're coming in with something else and have had COVID or the Omicron variant detected. Oh, that's interesting. So are COVID and the Omicron variant not the same, according to Rochelle Walensky? Hmm. Is that medical misinformation being spewed by the director of the CDC? During the interview, she said that eligible Americans should get vaccinated. The CDC director also reaffirmed that children have the lowest chance among all age groups of hospitalization or death from COVID-19. I want to remind people that in the fall of this year, we had a Delta surge and we were able to safely keep our children in school before pediatric vaccination, she said. Walensky made the comment in reference to a statement by Sotomayor amid oral arguments over the legality of the White House's rule for private businesses with 100 or more workers that requires employers to either get the vaccine or submit to regular testing. We have hospitals that are almost at full capacity with people severely ill on ventilators, Sonia Sotomayor said, according to a transcript provided by the Supreme Court, we have over 100,000 children, which we've never had before in serious condition and many on ventilators. I mean, that is not even close to being true. Over the weekend, PolitiFact made a post on Twitter and published an article declaring her assertion to be false. It cited CDC data as showing that about 3,500 children are hospitalized. 
And in recent days, doctors around the United States have told media outlets that many children who are hospitalized aren't there because of COVID-19. Seattle Children's Hospital critical care chief, Dr. John McGuire, told the Associated Press that, quote, most of the COVID positive kids in the hospital are actually not here for COVID-19 disease, end quote, while noting that children, quote, are here for other issues, but happen to have tested positive, end quote. New York State recently mandated that it would separate hospitalizations for COVID-19 versus those who simply tested positive for the disease, according to Democrat Governor Kathy Hochul. On January 8th, her office said that about 43 percent of the 11,548 hospitalized patients didn't have COVID listed as one of the reasons for admission. But that's not all of the disinformation that was coming out of the mouths of the Democrat Supreme Court justices. Sotomayor also said that vaccinated people cannot transmit the coronavirus. That is blatantly false and misleading medical misinformation. She said Omicron has been deadlier than Delta. That is completely false as well. Omicron hasn't been killing anyone, anyone. There are deaths with Omicron, but I'm not aware of a single death from Omicron. Maybe there's one out there and I've just missed it. It's possible but I don't think so. Uh, Sotomayor also said OSHA's regulatory authority is a federal police power. That's definitely not true. Hospitals are nearing capacity. False. COVID deaths are at an all-time high. Well, only cumulatively, but cumulatively, they're always at an all-time high. If she's talking about on a daily basis, they're not even close to that. Justice Elena Kagan said that it's beyond settled that vaccines and masks are the best way to stop the spread. Well, masks don't work and never have. And now they're all admitting it. And everybody will always say, yeah, but you have to wear uh, an N95. Uh, okay. Well, you also have to shave if you're a guy and you wear an N95. They have to be worn in a way that seals to your face that it fits perfectly if you want to prevent viral spread with an N95 mask. Except nobody does that. I see people at the gym wearing N95 masks. I wonder if the sweat might reduce their effectiveness. I wonder if the sweat on the face might make it so the mask doesn't fit perfectly. And regardless, even if somehow that's true, right? And if everyone wearing N95 masks all the time would stop the virus dead in its tracks. It's not happening and it's not going to happen. The people who are still wearing masks for some ridiculous reason, probably because they have the brains of children and think that they are modeling good behavior for everyone else. They're going to show everyone else that despite the science, despite what's being said about the cloth masks, oh, people are just insulting my mask because they're lazy and they don't care about saving lives they're still going to go ahead and wear them for no reason other than to show other people they are. Hey, buddy, your compliance does not protect me and my compliance does not protect you. In fact, compliance by anyone makes the situation more dangerous for everyone. So, hey, commie, you're killing people's grandma. Justice Stephen Breyer had to contribute as well. He said hospitals are full of unvaccinated people. And he said vaccine mandates and masks would prevent all 
of the 750,000 daily new coronavirus cases in the current surge, except that's not true either. At first, he said 750 million daily cases, and that was just a mistake. That wasn't active medical disinformation. That was a mistake. Now, if I had said anything as wrong as any of these things, or if you had said them, or if anyone had, and the place I had said them was on legacy social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, if I still had those platforms, but I don't because they banned me. And then actually I got my Instagram platform back briefly, right before they put in the new terms of service, which said they could ban me at any time and I would not be able to join a class action lawsuit against them. So I went ahead and deleted my Instagram before that time. But anyone saying things that were that wrong about the virus would be banned. That's what the platforms claim, except they don't ban people for being wrong about the coronavirus or any other medical misinformation. When it helps them, they don't care about medical misinformation when it helps their narrative, when it's on their side. You can actually post true things about the coronavirus. You can post true medical information and get banned on those platforms because the truth, unfortunately, does not help their cause. And so what are we supposed to think of this? Are we supposed to imagine that these Democrat justices are just too lazy to do the actual homework here? Where did they get these numbers? Did someone tell them this is what it is? Do they just have bad memories or did they not do their homework? All of those options are bad enough, but they might not be correct. It could be that they were actively trying to insert medical disinformation into the Supreme Court record, that they were actually trying to skew the public perspective in their direction. Maybe they thought that people would legitimately believe that and then support the decision that they had already made before hearing the case, or they would perhaps just be giving more incentive for people to get really upset and really scared if and when the decision doesn't go their way. So it could be portrayed in the near term and the long term as these five or six Republican justices declaring that they don't care about public health and that it's them making the political decision and not Kagan Sotomayor and Breyer. And sticking on the topic of COVID for a few minutes longer, boom segue, this is from Fox News yesterday. Biden administration guidance prioritizes race in administering COVID drugs by Kyle Morris. Guidance issued by the Biden administration states certain individuals may be considered high risk and more quickly qualify for monoclonal antibodies and oral antivirals used to treat COVID-19 based on their race or ethnicity. In a fact sheet issued for healthcare providers by the Food and Drug Administration, the federal agency approved emergency use authorizations of sotrovimab, a monoclonal antibody proven to be effective against the Omicron variant, only to patients considered high risk. The guidance, updated in December 2021, says medical conditions or factors such as race or ethnicity 
have the potential to place individuals at high risk for progression to severe COVID-19, adding that the authorization of citrovimab under the EUA is not limited to other factors outlined by the agency. Older age, obesity, pregnancy, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease are among the multiple medical conditions and factors associated with what are considered high-risk individuals by the FDA. Some states, including New York and Utah, have made it clear they will prioritize certain racial minorities over other high-risk patients when it comes to the distribution of particular COVID treatments. Last week, New York's Department of Health released a document detailing its plan to distribute treatments such as monoclonal antibody treatment and antiviral pills. The plan includes a section on eligibility for the scarce antiviral pills that people must meet to receive the treatment, including a line stating a person needs to have, quote, a medical condition or other factors that increase their risk for severe illness, end quote. One such risk factor is being a race or ethnicity that is not white due to longstanding systemic health and social inequities. And that's a quote. That last part, longstanding systemic health and social inequities. That's in the memo. Non-white race or Hispanic Latino ethnicity should be considered a risk factor as longstanding systemic health and social inequities have contributed to an increased risk of severe illness and death from COVID-19, the memo reads. In guidelines issued by the state of Utah for the distribution of monoclonal antibodies in the state, residents who are non-white race or Hispanic slash Latinx, <laughs> Latinx ethnicity receive two additional points when calculating their COVID-19 risk score. Two additional points. Isn't that amazing? It's almost like they have death panels. They are doing calculations on populations based on race to decide who gets the best chance of living or dying from the very deadly virus. Race and ethnicity continues to be a risk factor for severe COVID-19 disease, and the Utah COVID risk score is one approach to address equitable access to hard-hit communities. The Utah guidance stated, adding a reminder that national guidance from the FDA specifically states that race and ethnicity may be considered when identifying patients most likely to benefit from this life-saving treatment. You got that? They understand that the treatment could save someone's life and they are going to make their decision on who that should be based on whether or not they're white. FDA's acknowledgement means that race and ethnicity alone, apart from underlying health conditions, may be considered in determining eligibility for monoclonal antibodies, the framework states. It is ethically appropriate to consider race and ethnicity in monoclonal antibody eligibility decisions when data show elevated risk of poor COVID-19 outcomes for black, indigenous, and other people of color, BIPOC populations, and that this risk cannot be adequately addressed by determining eligibility based on underlying health conditions, perhaps due to underdiagnosis of health conditions that elevate risk of poor COVID-19 outcomes in these populations. You got that? So perhaps due to underdiagnosis, and you're supposed to understand that to mean all of the minorities in this country are not being properly diagnosed for the health problems they have as they arrive due to lack of access to the healthcare system. 
And you are simply supposed to accept that in the same way you might accept the idea that black people are unable to get IDs to enable them to vote. Except if you actually think about that for a few minutes, you'll realize that's not true at all. And making the claim is itself racist. Now, I'm no historian, but I would think that historically, when a society decides that one race in particular will be deprioritized for access to quote unquote life saving medical treatments, one might call that oppression. But you can't say that because it's racist not to go along with the full and total and complete race narrative as handed down to us by our Democrat rulers. You know, Democrats, the party of the Civil War, of slavery, of KKK, of Jim Crow, and then the party of the old switcheroo, where signing one law 60 years ago means that they can never be racist again and nothing they do is ever racist, including 60 years of economic and personal devastation within urban centers and minority communities and, you know, stealing their votes. None of that is racist because the Democrats pulled off the old switcheroo. They decided that the American public actually doesn't like racism that much. So rather than stopping the racism that they themselves were perpetuating, they would simply pull off the switcheroo and tell everyone that the other side is racist. It's not, it's not we who are racist. We passed the Civil Rights Act. Even after so many Democrats filibustered it, and even though the Republicans wanted to pass it already. Of the senators voting against the Civil Rights Act, 82% of the no votes were Democrats, not Republicans. There was no switcheroo. They just told you that, just like they told you masks work. Just like they told you the Steele dossier was true and that Trump colluded with the Republicans to steal the 2016 election. They're just lies, just like those lies. It doesn't matter that people believed them. And it doesn't matter that some people couldn't handle the fact that they were lied to. So they figured out convoluted and complicated ways to try to convince you that the lie was actually true and that even if it wasn't true, it doesn't matter now because of this or that emotion that we all have. And you must just understand that's how things were. And all those Democrats, they became Republicans and all the Republicans became Democrats. You know, the old switcheroo. It happened. It was real. And sure, the economic devastation in urban centers governed solely by Democrats has continued. And the gang violence has propagated everywhere in Democrat cities. But it's not their fault. You see, all that stuff is a result of the oppression of Republicans. You got it? So it can't be oppression what's happening now when we're deciding who gets life-saving treatment based on race. That is not oppression. And neither is censorship if we're censoring the right people. And neither is forcing people to participate in a medical experiment with life-altering consequences against their will and in violation of the Nuremberg Code. That's not a big deal either. It's certainly not oppression. 
People aren't oppressed in America. The Democrat Communist Party is helping to fix oppression. Don't you see? And if you don't see, we'll censor you. Now, returning to the subject of voter access, boom segue. This is from Politico. Michelle Obama and coalition vowed to register more than a million new voters. Former First Lady Michelle Obama said in a letter on Sunday that a coalition of voting rights organizations would register more than a million new voters across the country in the run up to this year's midterm elections. Obama, who founded When We All Vote, a campaign to register and organize voters, also said in the letter that the coalition would organize at least 100,000 Americans to contact their senators, urging them to pass the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Election reform legislation is struggling to pass the Senate as moderate Democrats are reluctant to change Senate rules and push it through. And it's funny, isn't it, that these propaganda outlets like Politico will actually name the problem and pretend that that doesn't mean the legislation doesn't have support of the people. This legislation does not have support of the people. They are literally trying to figure out ways to change historical Senate precedent so that they can pass a law to federalize and centralize elections in violation of the specific language of the Constitution. Obama's letter, which ran as an ad in the Sunday New York Times, comes at the start of a week when President Joe Biden will travel to Georgia to speak on what the administration views as Republican efforts to suppress the vote. Biden is expected to talk about his support for a filibuster carve out that would allow voting rights legislation to pass the Senate. Now, that's going to be a disaster. But it's also funny to notice that Michelle Obama had no problem running her letter as an ad in the New York Times. This morning, the publisher, the president of Skyhorse Books, the publisher of the real Anthony Fauci, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s book, said that he intended to put an ad out in the New York Times and they wouldn't let him because he was passing on dangerous conspiracy theories and medical misinformation. And they were all lies saying that Anthony Fauci lies is not something you're allowed to do, except if you're already the New York Times and you have articles about examples of Anthony Fauci being wrong or not telling the truth, which they have had. The push for voting reform is intensifying ahead of the 2022 midterms in which Democrats will fight to maintain their narrow control of the 50-50 Senate as Republican-led state legislatures across the country enact restrictive voting laws. In the letter titled, Fight for Our Vote, Obama referenced the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Oh, no. One year ago, we witnessed an unprecedented assault on our Capitol and on our democracy, she wrote. From Georgia and Florida to Iowa and Texas, states passed laws designed to make it harder for Americans to vote. And in other state legislatures across the nation, lawmakers have attempted to do the same. And they're not allowed to do that. States aren't allowed to pass their own laws to fix their own problems. Not if we don't say it's okay. She compared modern voter suppression tactics to, quote, poll taxes, literacy tests, and laws designed to strip away Americans' power. And, quote, saying that we must give Congress no choice but to act decisively and protect the right to vote and make the ballot box more accessible for everyone, including illegal immigrants like they just did in New York. And she didn't say that part. Of course, that was me. 
she would never actually admit what her party is doing when it comes to uh, fixing elections in their favor. People might take the second step and think, oh, so you brought uh, over two million illegal immigrants into this country this year and you're paying them and giving them public services and then you're also giving them the right to vote and you also want to register a million new people who didn't come out and vote in the 2020 election even though even though by their ridiculous and absurd and impossible numbers a full 25 percent more people voted in that national election than had voted in 2016. So somehow people hated Donald Trump enough that they could grow the electorate by 25%. And all of those people voted for Joe Biden. You understand? Because 12 million more people had voted in 2020 than 2016. And if we have to believe that everybody hated Donald Trump and that all the new voters, that was where the Democrat Party got their power through mail-in ballots that were picked up from wherever. Well, then you got to believe that all those new voters went for for Biden, right? I mean, Trump wasn't out there signing up fake voters left and right. That's what the Democrats do. Now, certainly some people could have gone out who hadn't voted. They had been turned off by the system for years or decades. And they finally went out and voted for the first time and cast their vote for Donald Trump. Maybe, right? A few million of those. But it's far more likely that people who had voted against Trump in 2016 saw the job that Donald Trump did and saw what was happening with the country and decided to switch over. And they increased Donald Trump's vote total by 20%. 12 million more people went and voted for Donald Trump. So Joe Biden if he lost 12 million from Hillary's total, well, that would be 54 million. And then he would have had to get a full 27 million new voters on his own because people didn't leave Donald Trump. The 12 million additional voters would indicate that pretty strongly. But that's not what the Lincoln Project said, is it? So Michelle Obama is going to get 100,000 little communist foot soldiers to go out and invent a million new Democrat voters. And well, I mean, hopefully they'll all be real legal American voters because if they weren't, well, <laughs> I mean, I guess nothing, right? You still got to count every vote. That's the important thing. Making sure that people who aren't allowed to vote still have access to the ballot box. If we don't allow them access to the ballot box, well, that's oppression. But wait, what is this headline in National Pulse today? One in 12 mail-in ballots rejected in an October election. This is Natalie Winters. One out of every 12 ballots cast in a recent election in Alaska was rejected due to irregularities, including postal service errors and voter identity inaccuracies. The latest example of the shortcomings of the fraud-riddled voting method, mail-in ballots were used in the election due to fears of in-person voting prompted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Isn't that amazing? Still, everybody was afraid to go out and vote in October of 2021. They couldn't do it then. Remember, the CDC told us on election day that even if you had an active COVID infection in 2020, you should still go out and vote because 
the risk of not voting is so much stronger than the risk of catching COVID. They literally told us that on Election Day in 2020. A few months before that, Anthony Fauci was on television saying that certainly if you can go out and run your errands, if you can go to the grocery store, then you can go stand in line to vote. He said that. But still, we had to get all those mail-in ballots because COVID-19 was just too scary to go out and vote. The October election took place in Juneau, and voters were deciding on a mayor, two assembly members, three school board members, and an extension of a 3% sales tax. Very highly disappointing for both voters and for our office, City Clerk Beth McEwen, who leads Juno's local elections, admitted. A total of 700 ballots were rejected, roughly half of which were due to errors by the U.S. Postal Service. Some of those mailed ballots arrived too late, while others arrived late but with no postal cancellation mark that would prove they were mailed on time, notes a local paper. Another 323 rejected ballots had issues related to either verifying a voter's signature or identifying through their date of birth an Alaska driver's license number, voter ID number, or partial security number. Isn't that odd? A handful came from ineligible voters. They were registered to vote in another community, or they sent in more than one ballot, or they weren't registered to vote on time. A few envelopes were returned without a ballot inside, and a few more ballots were returned without the official election envelope, added a report. The Juno election follows Democrats' massive campaign to universalize vote-by-mail elections in the U.S. at the federal level, as many believe the voting method was exploited by left-wing activists to ensure a victory for Joe Biden. While mainstream media outlets are quick to downplay claims of fraud against mail-in ballots following the 2020 elections, they previously had admitted the voting style has led to quote, high profile errors. Man, thank goodness no one looked into whether or not these problems happened in all the other states in the country in the 2020 election, right, Biden voters? That's what you're clinging to. But I know, I know it was the safest and most secure election in history. Now you can go back to sleep and not worry about it as your fake president takes this country to the lowest point in history. And also, by the way, reassuringly, takes himself to the lowest point in polling in history. Your president in under a year is already by far the worst president of all time. And maybe just maybe it has something to do with his illegitimacy. Now, this is also from National Pulse. Stanford professors lobbied the DOJ to stop fighting Chinese Communist Party infiltration. This is from yesterday. Also, Natalie Winters. Nearly 200 professors have signed a letter demanding Joe Biden's Department of Justice terminate a Trump era initiative targeting Chinese Communist Party linked academics, exploiting American universities for intellectual property theft and espionage. The 177 professors come from Stanford University, where Pamela Carlin, Biden's principal deputy assistant attorney general in the civil rights division of the Department of Justice, is on leave of absence as a professor. Carlin, who testified during then President Donald Trump's first impeachment, has spearheaded the Biden White House's anti-election audit efforts. Carlin's university is now lobbying the DOJ to repeal the China Initiative inaugurated by Trump's DOJ to combat espionage, infiltration, and intellectual property theft campaigns conducted by the Chinese Communist Party. And I'm going to read the letter for you. The article goes on, but I want to focus on what they actually said. Dear Mr. Garland, 
We faculty members at Stanford University are writing this open letter to express our concerns about the U.S. Department of Justice's China initiative. We acknowledge the importance to the United States of protecting both intellectual property and information that is essential to our national and economic security. We understand the concerns about Chinese government sanctioned activities, including intellectual property theft and economic espionage, are important to address. We believe, however, that the China initiative has deviated significantly from its claimed mission. It is harming the United States' research and technology competitiveness, and it is fueling biases that in turn raise concerns about racial profiling. As the president's science advisor, Dr. Eric Lander, stated on August 10th, 2021, we have to assiduously avoid basing policies or processes on prejudice, including those that could fuel anti-Asian sentiments or xenophobia. We believe that the China initiative is one such policy. We therefore would like to suggest that you terminate the China initiative and replace it with an appropriate response that avoids the flaws of this initiative. You got that? So the China initiative is bad because it might cause racism. And of course, they can't look like complete and total fools by making the claim that some response to China's intellectual property theft and espionage is not warranted. So they give that just a little tiny nod and then say, oh, but this policy isn't it. So what we need to do is get rid of this policy and then we'll impanel a committee. And in three or four or five or 10 years, that committee will have the perfect answer for how we can do this thing while not potentially sparking anti-Asian sentiment. Because anti-Asian sentiment is taking over the entire country. Don't you remember Stop Asian Hate a year ago when they tried that or 10 months ago, whatever it was? They tried a whole thing about Stop Asian Hate. Turns out that's not really a thing. Their one big event that was supposed to launch that PR campaign was a man going and shooting up massage parlors. Except most of the victims weren't even Asian. And... The reason he was shooting them up had nothing to do with Asians. But the argument here, of course, is that we need to do what's best for the Chinese Communist Party. Otherwise, everybody except us is racist. More specifically, we believe the China initiative suffers from the following fundamental flaws. First, the China initiative disproportionately targets researchers of Chinese origin. Publicly available information indicates that investigations are often triggered not by any evidence of wrongdoing, but just because of a researcher's connections with China. Hmm. Yeah, what a problem that must be. Investigating to find out whether someone's connections with CCP-run universities in China might be a problem. Whoa, the unfairness. I can't believe this is still happening in 2022. I was shaking my fist while I said that I was looking up to the sky. God, how could you abandon us? For example, see recent article in research by Professor Jenny Lee quoted therein. Has the hunt for Chinese spies become a witch hunt? <laughs> Karen Fisher, Chronicle of Higher Education, August 11th, 2021. In many cases, the federal response seems disproportionate and inappropriate. In some cases, federal agents associated with the China initiative have prosecuted researchers without solid evidence. Oh, well, I guess that's for the courts to decide, isn't it? That's strange. 
Moreover, racial profiling, even when undertaken in pursuit of justice, is both inconsistent with U.S. law and the principles underlying our society. I mean, except when it comes to deciding who gets life-saving medicines, at least. Then racial profiling is, you got to do it. You got to do it when we say. Otherwise, it's racist. But when we do it, it's good, helpful racism. Don't you understand? Moreover, again, I guess two moreovers in a row. All right. These actions do not just affect the prosecuted faculty, but affect the many more university researchers who are targeted, investigated, and feel threatened by inquiries initiated without prior evidence of significant wrongdoing. Universities and research institutions are often pressured to investigate researchers who are singled out only because of their personal or professional connections with China. Yes, that is actually how you go after espionage. In fact, the guy from Harvard was just convicted a few weeks ago. These professors are quite obviously worried about their own status and their own connections with China. Okay, these people take money from the Chinese Communist Party and the universities take money from the Chinese Communist Party and Chinese students go to these universities on full tuition because they are also actually Chinese spies. Yeah, that's a real thing. But who cares, right? The college has to make money. Stanford needs to add to its $27 billion endowment. You got to understand that. If Stanford is not allowed to do that by taking Chinese money, well, the university is just going to fall apart. I mean, they only have $27 billion in the tank. Second, in most of the China initiative cases involving academics, the alleged crime has nothing to do with scientific espionage or intellectual property theft. Most prosecutions are for misconduct, such as failure to disclose foreign appointments or funding. Yeah, right. That is a problem. These nutty professors, while such problems should be addressed, they should not be confused with national security concerns. Don't you understand? Our indoctrination centers need to be working and in contact with the Chinese Communist Party at all times, or else they're not going to know how to indoctrinate American students. Due to the openness of scientific research in academia, it is not surprising that the China initiative has not led to more espionage related prosecutions. It is misleading to the public that such prosecutions on unrelated crimes are presented as efforts combating national security threats. <laughs> These people are unbelievable. Third, the China initiative is harming the U.S. science and technology enterprise in the future of the U.S. STEM workforce. What? I thought they're getting all the racial and ethnic minorities to go into STEM related fields. I mean, isn't the whole thing that we are getting all the women to learn STEM? And strangely enough, we're also doing that while eradicating math standards in urban schools so that the urban kids don't actually have to learn math. But sure, these professors are probably telling the truth. Since World War II, the U.S. has benefited from an influx of many of the most talented scientists from around the world, including a large number from China. They have played a significant role in our success as a society. 
For example, a 2018 study by the American Society for Engineering Education reports that 28.4% of engineering faculty and 31.5% of assistant professors are in the U.S. are Asian. In recent years, the China Initiative and some other actions of the federal government have created an increasingly hostile atmosphere for Chinese Americans, visitors and immigrants of Chinese origin, which has already discouraged many scholars from coming to or staying in the U.S. This seriously hampers our efforts to recruit the best Chinese students and postdoctoral scholars. Oh, no. The difference between the open fundamental research carried out at universities and more applied and proprietary industrial or military research in the commercial sector must be recognized. Many of our most challenging global problems, including climate change and sustainability and current and future pandemics, require international engagement. Without an open and inclusive environment that attracts the best talents in all areas, the United States cannot retain its world-leading position in science and technology. Uh, do we have that? Hmm. In some China initiative cases, normal academic activities that we all do, such as serving as referees and writing recommendation letters, are adduced as evidence of extensive dealings with the PRC. Such actions are based on a significant misunderstanding of how scientific research works. They are detrimental to international collaboration. Instead of protecting the national security of the United States, we believe such action harms the U.S. ability to innovate. And I really, really love that line about how everyone else just has a significant misunderstanding of how scientific research works. The Trump administration surely, surely shares that misunderstanding. They have no idea about the science. Those dolts and idiots. You can't understand the science unless you are a scientist and scientific knowledge is completely opaque to us. Normal people, you have to be a scientist to understand the science. And I mean, if that's true, what do we need the schools for? Aren't the schools explaining science to people who are not yet scientists? It seems I mean, we've all listened to a lot of doctors and scientists over the last couple of years. Some of them are quite good at actually explaining what's happening from a scientific level and making it completely and entirely accessible to us mere lay people, us mere mortals. What they are really protecting is their ability and the public's perception that whatever they say simply goes. If you question it, it's because you're too stupid. You're not a scientist. You're ignorant of how science works. And so once you become a scientist and you get into the CCP funding and the Anthony Fauci manipulation of funding and all of the corruption in these universities and the science community that we have witnessed for two years now, well, then, then you understand the science and you say all the same things these people say. That's how it's supposed to work. And the people who don't say those things are cast out as scientists. That's why we get to ignore the Great Barrington Declaration. And that's why we can pretend that Dr. Rochelle Walensky at the CDC was not actually just lying in the clip I played earlier. We strongly urge you 
to terminate the China initiative and develop an alternative response to the challenges posed by our relations with the People's Republic of China. One that avoids racial profiling and discouraging beneficial and important collaborations and influx of talented personnel. And then they signed it. So that little letter didn't have a lot of proof of anti-Asian sentiment. We're just supposed to accept that that actually happens all the time and that that concern of potential maliciousness should outweigh what the project is intended to do, which is root out intellectual property theft that happens all the time and economic and other espionage, which also happens all the time. And I guess we better believe them because they're professors at Stanford. These people are a joke, man. These are the same sorts of people who try to tell you that there really are 57 genders and science says so. Apparently, you have to be Stanford smart to say things this dumb and pretend that they are still true. That's how smart you have to be. And if you don't understand how something so obviously stupid could actually be really smart, well, <laughs> yeah, that's because you're not, uh, you're not the right kind of smart, dummy. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting, or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. It's high noon! Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. Moderator for tonight's broadcast. <laughs>
in my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!